Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit simplecast.com. Tune in to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hey guys, welcome to District Durkas on Full Service Radio, broadcasting live from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan in Washington, D.C. It's 2 p.m. And I am a Durka from Yemen. My name is Sama. So a Durka from Yemen, that's me, and a Durka from Algeria, Lilia. Hi there, everyone. This is Lilia. We're living in the District of Columbia, and we get together to decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the capital of the United States. Our topics include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc., and all the prisms and schisms in between. Um, Lilia and I are actually friends. That we're not just co-hosts, and we engage in a lot of conversations. Some of them are a little bit more hostile than others, and we talk very honestly and openly about what it means to be a, a quote-unquote Arab, as I know that you don't... Not Arab. You don't consider yourself Arab, but nonetheless, a lot of people think that we are very alike. I consider myself Arab, and we were just asked, actually entering into the hotel, if we are twins. twins. <laughs> yeah, and, and we get that a lot, right? But not the twins part. We get the part that... Sisters. Yes. And then you get the part where some people think that they've met you before because they saw me. Correct. And we find <laughs> it we find it strange because we don't... You know, all we have in common is dark features, I yeah. would say. And maybe, and maybe a little bit of, of sad eyes. Or like, I was about to say... Yeah, but, but other than that, we're, we're different height, we're different sizes, we're different colored hair. Um, but it was, this is part of our experience here. As Durkas. Yes. So what, is, what exactly is Durka? What is a Durka? Well, let me start by introducing myself and my relationship to D.C. So this is Lilia. I'm a Durka from Algeria. I've been living in D.C. for a few years now, on and off. I've frequented... Um, two universities in D.C. Uh, mainly, I concerned myself with international relations, and I've concentrated my studies on the Middle East and peace and conflict resolution. Sophisticated Durka. <laughs> but I'm not from the Middle East. I'm from Algeria, and I was born in Algiers. Shout out to the Bay. Um, and I was raised partly in Europe and in D.C., and I consider my identity to be a collection of various facets, and I don't see the contradiction in them. But throughout the years, I've seen that these contradictions have been imposed on me. Because nope. however I perceive myself, I'm wearing a uniform, the Durka uniform. So how would you explain that uniform? The uniform is a lack of nuance, is assumption, expectation to perform a certain identity that's been prefabricated outside of reality that has maybe an agenda or maybe that is rooted in reality. Well, do you do you technically feel that you're a Durka? That's a very complicated question. How about your take on what a Durka is? Well, my take is that I am in fact a Durka. 
I at some point lived very much to the stereotypes. When I first came to the States, that's about 11 years ago. I've been here in DC for 11 years. I've lived everywhere from you know Foggy Bottom where my university was. I went to George Washington University, so it's as DC as it comes and as kind of American as Washingtonian as I can be. And so my experience at first was that I was a fob. A fob is a fresh off the boat person. I always, uh, you can tell that I wasn't from here when I tell people to turn on or turn off the light or turn up the volume. It was always uh, put it on or, you know, the way that I translate it in my head, it would come out wrong in English. And, and my American friends would just look at me. And, and that's the moment when they realize that I'm not American. And it's just like, oh, oh, would you just say that's so funny? That's that's so cute. And it's like, oh, thanks, you know. Or um, I would meet people and I would talk to them and they'd be like, what state are you from? And I'd be like, oh, actually, I'm from Yemen. And they're like, oh, that's amazing. You, your accent. Wow. Did you, did you, how did you do that? And it's like, well, school, you know, TV, uh, you know. <laughs> that's amazing because you'd consider yourself a Durka. And yeah, I have to say like by your accent, nobody could tell where you're from. I have an accent and I don't consider myself a Durka in the stricter sense to me it's more an experience that I have to go through um, by what I'm told about myself through people's eyes but my accent definitely reveals my various identities but for some reason the one that speaks louder is the Durka well how about we play for our audience yes, where please. we you know we got this clip Um, Jack is going to play it for us. I want you guys to listen to it. After the guy speaks very briefly, you can hear an Egyptian accent. A guy says, uh, which means, why don't you just go home? And you can hear it very subtly. So my Egyptian friends tune into that. Durka Allah, Muhammad Jihad. Bagala, Muhammad Jihad. Bagala, Muhammad Jihad, La Durka Durka, Muhammad Jihad, Muhammad Jihad. Oh, shit. Come on, Gary. Act. You have the power. Bak, Dirk Durka La. Durka Durka, Muhammad Jihad. Haka Sherpa Sherpa, Bagala. Oh, Durka, Durka, Durka. So I love that. Yeah, well, I'm laughing, but I'm also rolling my eyes so much like back that I'm giving exorcist eyes right now. <laughs> it's, I think it's amazing because, you know, the guy, you know, you have, you have a scene. Let's set it up for our audiences yes. who haven't seen this before. You have two people who look like they're Afghani or Pakistani. They're dressed in turbans. They're holding AK-47s. You have they're, a belly dancer. They're, they're, yeah, they're brown people. And the guy is engaging a white person who's dressed uh, like a towel head because the person, the white person, is in fact wearing a towel on a, top of his head. A, a literal, turban, yes. Well, he's wearing a towel uh, on his head trying to look or assimilate into what they consider, you know, Middle Eastern or Durka in a and sense. And he he's wearing a brown face. I yeah. don't know if it's mud or something else more controversial. Kaka. Yes. <laughs> well, we don't know what's on his face, but we know that it's, he's got brown face. Yes. And he's got blue eyes. And then this, this guy engages him in conversation. He goes, Durka, Durka, Muhammad Jihad. 
And out of these words, the only thing that makes sense is Muhammad, which is the name of the prophet of Islam, and then jihad, which is a very hot topic here in the U.S., which just really means strife. Yes. Right? Inner struggle, different type of struggles. Yeah. So jihad. And then he's challenging this American personality, Gary, to respond to him. And Gary, with his blue eyes, looks confused and wearing his towel and his brown face. He looks at him and he's like, Durga, Durga. Muhammad Jihad and and he convinces them that he is in fact one of them and then you hear the character again go oh Durka 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 and that means like hey welcome yeah because what is a Durka but a a bunch of unintelligible um, gibberish gibberish but um, warlike gibberish yes it's it's, it's scary yes it's a call to arms it's a call to war it's a call to violence it's scary unintelligible violence that's I mean, the password. I think Durka here, we chose, we, we thought about a lot of names. You know, what are we going to call ourselves? We're in the district of DC, so district. And then Durka is the only word in that segment that actually has no meaning whatsoever in the Arabic language. Um, I don't think that it has meaning in Farsi or Pashtun or even, you know, if we are to do a stretch like Urdu. Um, and so I took that word and I think now we can give that word some meaning and we can define what Durka is. And so I, I think it's great. Yes, and I mean, they meant it in a, it was a parody. It's, they didn't mean it literally. So yeah. we're kind of vibing off a similar vibe that they're conveying. Yeah, they're, but you know what? When I was younger, that offended me. Like when it came out, this is, you know, Team America, World Police. It came out in 2004. My brother was watching it. My younger brother was way into it. And I was just sitting next to him doing my homework for school. And I heard that part. And I, I, even though it was meant as a parody, at that time it offended me because I didn't know how to laugh about it. And because the way that Middle Easterners and Arabs and, you know, Persians and they were all jumbled together, you know, North Africa, everybody's the same. And we're portrayed very aggressively in the media. And so I took it very sensitively because I didn't know how to make peace with that image. I kind of had the same experience with, and I don't know if you've seen or had any awareness of this movie, Hot Shot 2. No, I haven't seen it. What is that? Uh, it was about the Gulf War. It was about toppling Saddam Hussein. But it was before they... Before they toppled him. Yes. So it was kind of like so a vision. So it was a parody. It was a parody. But I had the same experience because the parody was so close to reality and the narrative on Middle Eastern was so ambiguous and violent and restricted that it was hard for me to... I, I did laugh, but I did feel a sting. Yeah, because, because there were real repercussions on the ground in the global discourse that were threatening. Well, you said that you grew up in Europe, right? Yes. Um, what was your first experience when you realized that you were Durka and you were different than other people? Well, my first experience was when I lived in Geneva in kindergarten. And I knew how to read. Nobody else knew how to read, which I think didn't help my case as a Durka because that's not the expectation. You're not supposed to be ahead. Oh, you're supposed to mumble your way through. Durka, Durka. <laughs> like, yes, I was yelled at for reading. Pretend you don't know how to read, basically. But it came to me when, on that day where we were all supposed to wear traditional garment mm-hmm. from, you know, the French people from the region, Switzerland, from their part of Switzerland. And I was the only Northern African in the school. Besides me, there was this Moroccan girl who never had any problem being integrated. The perception on her was so kind. I was always alienated. And I wondered until that day. 
So on that day, I wore what traditional people from Algiers wear, which is um, sarwal. It's pants. pants. Yeah. It's not a skirt. And you have a vest. It's a very tight, um, fitted. Is it embellished vest? Yes, it is. And you wear a hat. It's very reminiscent of the Ottoman era. Okay. But the Moroccan girl wore a belly dancing outfit, which was welcomed generously, where I was met with confusion. What is this? Okay, <laughs> so you have two kids from North Africa and you're wearing pants, a vest, and a hat. And another girl comes in wearing a belly dancing outfit. Yes, but she's glitter? five. Not, not just belly her, out. But belly out, it was a green outfit with veils and they were acting like... You know, I imagined the outfit to be green. I don't know why. <laughs> That's kind of how I saw <laughs> the it. The Durka Messiah had come back to them and it was confirming everything they ever envisioned. So you're saying North to African. fit in, yes. she had to play into their image of and her. And she played into that. And so she was accepted, but I didn't because I was expected to perform a certain identity. And that's why to me, yes, a Durka is a slur that is targeting people affiliated with the Middle East or being Arab or being Muslim. But there's a greater notion there about... So- so you know, feeling how, the expectations of having to be a certain identity. Who do you who do you blame for her wearing a belly dancing outfit? Like she doesn't know who she is at five. She's performing. You know, she probably loved wearing a belly dancing outfit. Wouldn't you kind of privately at home kind of enjoy? I did. I did up? much later on for Halloween. Yeah, I, I had to confront my fear of Orientalism by embracing them. Were for you one Jasmine night. from Aladdin or something like that? Never. Nobody ever tells you, hey, what are you for Halloween? Are you Jasmine from yes. Aladdin? All right, so <laughs> so was she Jasmine? Was the girl, you know, your your friend, you know, in elementary school, who do you blame that she played into that image? Is it her parents? Is it, do you blame the way that others viewed her? Who do you blame in that case? You know, who does the fault lie on? Well, I can't blame her. She's five. Yeah. So I'm guessing her parents understood the logic of integration and assimilation. Assimilation. I don't think she's to blame. She's just playing in a bigger scheme. Would you dress your kid in a belly dancing outfit or would you dress them in a sirwal and a vest and a hat? Well, depending on what the assignment is, the assignment was traditional garment from where you're from. She's from Morocco. So, but they, they don't wear belly dancing exactly. outfits in Morocco. Yeah. So they have Her those beautiful, play, beautiful but, dresses. They're, but now we're getting into gorgeous. correct. But now we're getting in the whole selling of a culture. Well, Mor- Morocco depends a lot on tourism and selling this Orientalist idea of what the North Africa is, and snake charming and belly dancing is all part of that storytelling. So if we are to talk about Durkas as an umbrella term that we can use on different types of Durkas or different types of people that are portrayed as such, what kind of Durka do you think her parents would be? So I guess what you're saying is that the Durka notion is not simply one that is imposed, but something that is reciprocated by the Durkas themselves who choose to be willing contributors. In this case, yes. But in other cases, not necessarily. But it is an umbrella term that we can then divide into subcategories that I think in our blog later on on our website, www.districtdurkas.com, we're going to talk about what we talked about here. And probably we can draw out 
some designs and names of Durka categories that we can kind of, <laughs> you know, identify in society. I mean, definitely there's the self-loathing Durka who tries to not be Durka. And I think that's actually the most common in urban cities because we try to distance ourselves as much as possible from our culture because we're so ashamed of how we've been portrayed, of how the news is in the Middle East. I mean, the Middle East right now is chaotic, uh, sectarian war, rebels, uh, tribes, militias. And then you have proxy wars taken over now. And it's just like such a mess. And so when you're trying to live a respectable life, you're already an immigrant or you're living abroad trying to study something, you really don't want to be associated with that. And so I think the self-loathing Durka is, is definitely something that's, that's up there. I think you met one recently, right? You were out and you met a self-loathing Durka who you, you engaged somebody in conversation. Uh, I mean, it was self-loathing. I wouldn't call it self-loathing. I would call it lucid. He was aware of his lobbying job in D.C., Mm -hmm. which asked for him to pretend that everything is okay and please invest in my country. He was from Lebanon. Mm -hmm. And the degradation of actually being from a place where there is no agency, where you feel there's constant conflict, when you have no control on this conflict and your own narrative. So all he felt was shame when I asked him what does it mean for you to be an Arab he said shame yeah I mean also in these places you you also see within Arab countries Arabs who are trying not to be Arabs yes but to me that wasn't self-loathing he was very proud of being Lebanese and he was riding that wave and trying to convey the greatness of where he was from but there's also a reality that he needs to deal with. I mean, seriously, shout out to Beirut. I love that city. No, seriously, <laughs> Never everybody. Never had the pleasure, but yes, shout out to everybody Beirut. Everybody needs been... to go there. And, and yes. their history is phenomenal. You've got 15 years of civil war and conflict, yet they came out and they've been standing strong, not being dragged into conflict right now. Beacon of clubbing scene. And the Kardashians definitely owe them all that look and makeup because the Lebanese singers have done that a long time ago. (laughs) Definitely. But I think as a country, it's standing strong right now, not being dragged into conflict, although there are many, many factions and groups trying to drag it down that way. It's a place, I think, of the entire Middle East. It's a place where I can be who I am as I am here in Washington, D.C. freely. I don't have to adjust and tweak myself. And on that note, I want to talk about uh, living in the Gulf and being a, you know, Uh, Arabian Peninsula Durka because Mm -hmm. I'm from Yemen and it's the poorest country in the entire Arabian Peninsula and it's under Saudi Arabia and near the UAE and all of these countries you know and even Qatar they're all um, you know we have Oman, Qatar, United Arab Emirates and you know all the Arab and Gulf countries around us are super wealthy and Yemen is very extremely poor but we get influenced by their culture by their art by their language And I think in that part of the world, you grow up kind of developing a dual identity, an identity where you portray yourself to the public a certain way, you dress a certain way, you carry yourself a certain way. It's very important to maintain a respectable image, especially if you're a woman. If you're a man, all bets are off. It depends on your family, but they don't really care. Men can do anything. And women have to dress a certain way and talk a certain way. But the funny thing is, in all these countries, there's another life. There's an underground life. And there is, you know, you go and you do whatever you want. And everybody knows it. And I think that this dualness is encouraged. You know, they want you to have two identities. As long as you maintain the public one. I, th- I think societies then have backlash if you start to show your other identity as your 
permanent identity. You know, your underground identity cannot become your everyday identity. They would rather keep a facade than acknowledge that these things happen. And I think with the rise of globalism and you have Instagram and you have Twitter and you have Facebook and you have this life virtually that you can live and experience very differently than the life you live on the ground. I think these countries are struggling a lot to kind of define who they are. And so in a sense, when you come to Washington, D.C., when you go to schools, you know, you went to AU, I went to George Washington. I went to George Washington. That was actually my first collegiate experience in D.C., the Elliott School of Foreign Affairs. Did you see a lot of Durkas around there? I mean, you have the Gulf Durkas. We have to talk about these because you see them all over D.C. They've got the Porsche cars. They've got the Maseratis. They've got the, you know, loud, booming music. They tend to hover outside or inside of a Starbucks. Uh, We had Bin Ladens at AU. I think, I think that's awesome. The Bin Ladens are very, you know, uh, wealthy family. They've been, you know, the last names obviously um, tainted yeah. at this point, mm-hmm. you know, to say the least. But they, a lot of them are educated and they live free lives, but then they have to maintain a specific appearance when they go back home. But let's talk back again about what it's like to be a Durka in D.C. How, you know, that was my first experience. I mean, I haven't seen so many people from the Gulf until I, I came to D.C., actually. I haven't met so many people from Saudi Arabia, from um, Kuwait, from Bahrain, from, you know, you name it. I haven't met people from there until I came to the United States and I met them at university because they go to the expensive universities seeking higher education. And at that time, the Saudi embassy specifically had a mission to send a specific amount of students. I think it was 5,000 students to, to have around in D.C. to fund them and help them go to school. And I thought that was a great initiative on behalf of the kingdom. But I think in these days, they've decreased the number. That's no longer they've the decreased, case. Well, mainly because they've closed a lot of the English centers. So once you remove that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of them came to learn the language, right? Yes. And it was their first experience outside of their country and kind of an, an opportunity to see what, what the West was like. But they do speak English, like. so I don't know what that means, that closing an English learning center would well, it was diminish an the number of them coming to D.C. An opportunity to travel. I mean, my encounter with them was kind of fun because... Uh, you know, as as Yemeni, where do I, where do I where do I associate myself? Like, who do I attach myself to to maintain my dirkiness? You know, like I want you have to maintain. So you're it. trying to maintain your dirkiness. Yeah, of course. I'm, I'm trying I'm, to deconstruct. I come and, from and a tribal <laughs> background. Like I want, I am such a dirka. Like I have to so, maintain. I'm so proud of you, my dirkiness. There's, an, there's pride. Essential. I'm I'm proud of being dirka. But I, what is being a dirka then? I take well, it's it's a lot of things. But for me, it's being generous. You know, like to my friends, I want to show them that being a Durka is not necessarily a bad thing. Like here, you know, if I'm, if I'm about to go to a restaurant, I'm going to buy you lunch. We're going to talk. I'm going to tell you about my culture. I'm going to welcome you to it. I want you to see what my culture is like. Wouldn't you say that is a universal quality to be generous? Hospitality? Hospitality, yes. I would say not. And then that maybe that varies. Would you say that about the sweets, for example? Absolutely. I mean, Ikea, how much hospitable can you be? Yeah, but you have to purchase it. Still, very accessible. No, because you would purchase it and then you get hospitality, for example. This is free hospitality. As a matter of fact, I'm paying you for my hospitality. I don't think hospitality is specific to one culture. I think it's a very universal concept. Yes. I I mean, I don't know. I I think it depends maybe on how big a city is and how much it can accommodate certain qualities. But definitely these qualities do not pertain to 
specific group of people. But well, you know what? I have a story to tell you about a friend of mine. Who's, yes, it's gonna it's gonna turn the Durka concept on its head. <laughs> but come l- wait. Let's take a break right now, right. and we'll be right back. Today's break song is called Underwear. It's by Rectech. This is Full Service Radio. We'll be right back. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to District Durkas. This show airs live every Thursday at 2 p.m. and it's going to be archived on fullserviceradio.org. It's also going to be on our website, districtdurkas.com. So just to remind you, a Durka from Yemen, that's me, Sama, and a Durka from Algeria, Lilia. Hala. Living in the District of Columbia, we get together to decipher the Middle Eastern experience in the capital of the United States. So our topics include feminism, sexism, terrorism, absolutism, atheism, monotheism, socialism, etc. And all the prisms and schisms in between. So right before the break, we were just talking about the definition of the term Durka and how I feel proud to be a Durka and how some people don't feel proud to be a Durka and how it's an umbrella term that could embrace different types of Durkaness, I would say. And I wanted to mention a story that would flip the Durka definition on its head. Um, so we've talked about this before off air and I expressed a lot of feelings about it because I don't know how to think about it, but I, I'll share this story with our, with our audience. When I was in school, I had a friend, and we, we agreed we'll call him Tobias because that's, you know, any other name, I think it would be easy to figure out who this person is. I went to school, uh, high school in Yemen, and there was this kid who was um, <clears throat> Western, and he spoke Arabic, but he spoke Arabic with a dialect. He didn't speak Fusha Arabic, which is the proper Arabic that most people who don't speak Arabic learn. And so he spoke the dialect like a native, And he was one of my best friends in school, and he was a very talented graffiti artist and and just talented in in so many ways. We spent a lot of time painting, and then we parted ways. He went to university, and I came here to the U.S., and my friend became a social media star. I mean, I shared the videos with you. How How would you describe him? How would I describe the... Well, it's him um, speaking in dialectal Arabic and reaping apparently huge accolades from being funny with dialectal Arabic. I think it's enough. He's, I don't want to say that, but no, I can't say that. 
What, what are you trying to say? I don't know. It's it, it's like a circus. It's like watching somebody perform something and then everybody claps like, good, good, you speak Arabic. Like it's do. definitely entertainment <laughs> on that level, for sure. I mean, he has mastered the Arabic language that he can do different dialects. And I think he does it for shock value yeah. in the sense that he's tall, he's super white, freckled, you know, light colored, you know, blue eyes. Not bad looking. You know, like light hair. And he just, he walks around to a room full of Arabs and he would just spit out the most Bedouin accent he can manage or the most you know it depends because he could do so many accents and he's talented on that level but then all the Arabs around would stop and freeze and just look at him and they're like oh, oh my god or like you speak Arabic or like and it's like okay yes he speaks Arabic and it always made me feel confused you know at first it's kind of amusing to watch on like Instagram or whatever but then I think about it. You know, can you imagine if every time I spoke English, white people would stop and look at me that way? Well, they're you part know. of the dominant culture. So you speaking English is just part of the system. You have to speak English in order to be part of what's relevant. So we're complicit. We're not complicit. This is the order of things. It's just we're being realistic. Whereas, where is he from? Oh, well, let's keep where he's from. All right. Because uh, it'll so be easier to figure He's English speaking. Yes. All right. So... Coming from an English-speaking country and speaking Arabic, now that's rare. Now that's you not having to do that to exist or even to dominate. You're showing interest to all the little people. But here's the thing. It's not rare to be English and to speak Arabic. Dialectal? What's rare is to speak the dialect correctly. You're speaking the slang. You're you're going the extra length. So, I mean, but don't we do that? Like... Like you and I, like when when somebody makes a reference. And look at the Gulf. I mean, isn't that everything they're trying to do is emulate New York, emulate like skyscraping, emulate capitalism? I mean, if you remove the dogma. Well, they they'd still disagree with that, if right? If you remove the ideology, it's very similar. Well, no, they're just similar in the sense that they're capitalist as well. Yes. They're mimicking the economy of a superpower. Correct. But the influence of economy is very different than how they want to express themselves culturally. So then they culturally. have a, a person coming from that culture speaking their dialect. It's a bit, I mean, what is Tarzan? What is the last samurai? What is Lawrence of Arabia? Mm-hmm. I think that's what he's echoing. I mean, definitely. Like, I, I, I think that's fascinating, but at the same time, to me, he has now become a type of a Durka. Tobias is a Durka. You know, he is, I mean, I don't know what the proper term is, but a Durka doesn't necessarily have to be just a, a person who's brown-skinned, who is living, you know, outside of their country or in the Middle East or in an Arab-speaking country or is a Muslim. I think it's also, you know, white people who then embrace the culture in that way. And you've, you've mentioned something about how like where it comes from his Arabic you mentioned something about he learned Arabic somewhere and then yeah, he, some, he was somewhere raised in the Middle East he sold out I think that was the problematic I mean yeah that's, that. that's the thing he was he was raised in the Middle East and I mean I considered him a brother and um, he learned Arabic this the same way that I would learn Arabic by living there and going out on the street and talking to people and engaging with them which I thought was beautiful but then after living for the majority of his life in Yemen, he went somewhere else and abandoned that dialect altogether to impress another country. And then in the, in the country that he lives in now, they pay him money for ads. So he would do commercials for the country by, you know, being a Westerner that speaks the language very well. 
And I think he's doing very well for himself in that way. You know, I think it's great. But at the same time, I can't help but think, you know, what happened to your, you know, your background? Because to me, he is somewhat Yemeni because his experience is Yemeni. You know, he grew up there. Is there anything in what he's saying that shouts out to Yemen or any sort of awareness, any sort of representation in what he does? Or is it strictly I mean, the only thing he did videos about showing himself and showing off and, and milking that little... I mean, I, I don't really follow him anymore because I, I really hate like little Instagram stuff and stunts like that. Um, Would you say he appropriated? Would you say he's... No, I think... I think his experience is true to that. But at the same time, towards the end, the, the last few accents I heard him kind of produce, it, it almost to me, knowing him as a child, like that's new. Like, where did that come from? So <laughs> you you're know? saying he had a talent and it could have been used for better understanding and more comprehensive, but he's using it just to be a goofball. I just wish he didn't entertain people on that level. Okay. You know, like he has a talent. And it's admirable, but to turn it into a joke where he's entertaining people is reducing his experience. And I think that Middle Easterners should expect more of that from people who come and live in the Middle East. Uh-huh. I think we should expect people who come and, and learn the language to speak it properly instead of us guessing every word that they're saying and being like, oh, it's okay, they're, they're from outside of here. Because when you come to America, nobody does that for you. Yeah, but that's, again, the problem of, you know, I mean, hegemony. listen, here in America... This is the hegemony. Like, we live in... This is the world we live. Like if you take a no, but a if you think of the Middle of the East, world right now, this is what it is. If you think of the Middle East and if you think of the Arabian Peninsula specifically, they are not very welcoming people. Like you can come, they will be hospitable, they will be friendly, they'll be generous, but you will not be one of them unless you are in fact one of them. You know what I mean? Like they are a very tribal society, and in the sense that, in a sense, it's easier to assimilate here, like because of how society is, it's very modern. You don't have that tribal order. You don't have to belong to specific sects or political groups or any of that, you know? So it's easier here to assimilate than it is there. And so in a sense, if you're going to go and be an, an expert on the Middle East, or if you're going to come here and tell everyone all the knowledge that you know from the Middle East, like, please try and speak the language, you know? Like, please. And, and if you're going to be an expert here in, in Washington, D.C. about it, Don't just read news. Go there. Go there. Walk around. Talk to people. Get to know. Like, do you know how many people here work for think tanks and organizations and show up on TV? Like, I was once on television, and there was a segment about Yemen and something like that, and, and a very famous guy, and I'm not going to mention their name, but right before we went on camera, he said, oh, is Yemen still the same? The last time I've been there was 1993. Yeah, well... 1993. And in 2016, this person was giving their opinion as if they were just there. But that person was there because they're white and they spoke the language like people here. And he, w he was able to convey But I'm going to argue that at least he had been to Yemen, which is a privilege, like having access to be an expert and having access to this region, which I think they do have. Yeah, but why is it so... Not the other way around, because a passport is a restricting instrument. Yes. So to me, I would, I would say the absolute opposite. They have access to these countries. They have access to knowledge. Yes. But We yeah, don't. Maybe yeah. the Gulf does, because it's a, in a way, it's a magnified class struggle where the Gulf... Are we going to talk about the ban? Are we going to talk about the Trump No, end? we're not talking about the ban, but <laughs> I want to I <laughs> hit you with a counterexample of your friend, Tobias. Mm -hmm. Um, there's this guy in Algeria. He's, he's American. His name is um, Andrew Ferrand. 
Okay. And he's taken a liking for living in Algiers. He speaks dialectal Algerian. Yeah. To a point where, I'm sorry, but I feel like those people who are applauding, I, even the pace, his cadence is that sounds typically phenomenal. Algerian. But he lives in Algeria. He teaches in Algeria. There's nothing about him that is disrespectful. It's an embracing. It's not even assimilation. He's not and using it as a joke. He's not. He's using it as a platform to, to make... He's almost like an ambassador. The ambassador that we don't have because we it has to come from somebody who's not us i mean if he starts i mean there's telling a, there's the good news british of guy. algeria that's that's an advantage that's something I, I welcome i mean there's a british guy in in yemen called tim mcintosh and he wrote two books on that and he did the same thing he went there he learned the dialect and then he considered himself a local got a house and is living there those are academics. Those are people who immerse themselves in the culture. I would love to see more people like that go on TV and be experts. So I'm saying there's Tobias, and maybe he's responding to a logic that pertains to that region, which is all about maximizing capitalism, Instagram appearances, no content. And then when people are other countries, not to blow Algiers horn, where this doesn't matter, your Instagram just doesn't matter. Yeah, but so you I have think to it's have generational a different as well. And that's why there are different types of Durkas, different types of... No, so that's why I, I'm, I'm going to go back to what you said about being proud of being a Durka. To me, it's not about either being proud or not. It's about there is no Durka. There is only the individual and the freedom to be to expand your identity and to integrate whatever part you feel agrees with you or, or not. I mean, I'm not saying you just... Well, let me, let me push it. back, okay? Let me push right, back. I think that back in the day, okay, like 25 years ago... Push being, it back further. You mean I, like the 80s I, I or know, 70s, I mean, 60s? I think, 20, I think always it's been kind of hard to understand people from the Middle East. Brown people all look the same. They don't know where you're from. They mix stereotypes. They, you know, fine, that happens, you know? But what I'm saying is I think in the last 20 years, it's gotten worse. And and to prove that, and, and, you know, we mentioned that in the story, like Tim McIntosh and the guy that lives in Algeria, Andrew Ferrand. Well, both of them, I think, were part of an older generation, while my friend Tobias is, not. is, is like he's under 30. He's already, sorry. <laughs> well, that's great then. OK, well, I'm, I'm going to take us now to a segment yes. that we're going to call Orientalism Express. Expressed. Um, thank you, Agatha Christie, for the last movie that we saw. Um, <laughs> But in this clip, we're going to play uh, a segment from Charmed. Charmed is one of Lilia's favorite. I mean, not one of my favorite. I'm just re-exploring okay. fantasy shows. I have, yes, proclivity for fantasy shows. So you, you love it. Why do you love Charmed? Um, I mean, strong female leads, an element of magic, metaphor for power, solving, you know, whatever comes at you, and just, the, you know, the sisterhood. So we have been talking about Durkanis and portrayals of, you know, Middle Easterners in, on these shows. And so in this clip, uh, we're going to explore the theme of a genie in a bottle. And it's called, um, it's a season six episode. Yes. And do you remember the name of the? Well, it's I Dream of Phoebe. Yes. Because and she's a character in, in, in the show. But really, it's echoing an older show called I Dream of Genie. Okay, so genie not as genie in a bottle. I mean, to play on the word, obviously, but genie. Yeah, so let's let's G. play that that clip. A woman being attacked. Where? Looks like a dig site. 
desert in the Middle East. You sure your scrying wasn't off? Maybe Jenny is an archaeologist. Yeah, why would an archaeologist in the Middle East send a letter to an advice columnist in San Francisco? She said she was with a controlling man. Okay, you're missing my point. What happens if this is a trap? What is that? You think anyone heard them? Are you Jenny? At your service, master. I mean, as they would say in their dialect, I can't even. Where do you even start? How many tropes and cliches can you cramp in one cavern, one oh, desert? Master. I think it's great. Let's, let's dissect it. Full service radio. Because, you know, <laughs> listening to it is a little is a little different, huh? You know, like, w when you see it, they're, they're in a cave. But the guy says, we're in a desert in the Middle East. Yes, where did that come from? How and, do you know they you're were in the Middle East? They were in the cave. I thought it was hilarious. Maybe you're in California. And, of course, a white guy comes in on a magic carpet that's flying in and drops a bottle mm -hmm. that then Phoebe proceeds to rub and immediately out comes the genie. And let's not forget that the reason why she's there on a mission is because, well, now we know we're in the Middle East, this woman is victim of a controlling man. Yeah, what a so you add that. stereotype. I mean, that's just great. <laughs> you know, I... Cue in the music. The concept <laughs> is, it's kind of funny, because you have Genia in a bottle, Christina Aguilera's music video, mm -hmm. and she's all, you know, belly out, dancing, uh, some erotic elements in there. And then you have this genie come out. She's also got her belly out, and she's dressed as a belly dancer, even though she's a genie. Um, and I think people, you know, I love, I love genie stories. My childhood was full of them. Yes. But I think that people here don't understand what a genie is. That you should be a little more scared. Yeah. Like this we're terrified of genies. Genies sexy like. Sexy apparition. It's, they're, they're gin, you know, they're. You don't like, want to look at that. They're like a type of spirits, I, I would say. Like, how would you describe a genie? <clears throat> I mean, they're made out of fire. And then there's all the things we tell each other as kids. Yeah. Very scary. I mean, don't want to see a genie. When I was when I was young, they would scare me from looking down at high, you know, at, you know, if I'm in a high rise building, they would always tell me not to look down because a genie that looks like a feather would pull me would pull me down. It'd push you. Yeah. And so the genie could be like a feather, right? Like they could take up shapes and sizes and they could take up bodies. And I don't understand why in the West it's always a woman, an attractive woman with her belly out. Because um, I think this is, in a way, a reflection of their own sexism, and they're trying to borrow it, but really, it's it's coming from there. And yeah, the, I think Middle Eastern women the, are always either you know sexual objects yes, or oppressed or like covered up, and you know they don't get a say. Or but this idea is in fact from them. The idea of a servile woman who's undressed—if that resonates so much, and if that's what they take from something that actually doesn't exist, that's not what a genie is. Then I think it has more to do with the global culture of sexism and objectifying women than 
also, Middle Eastern tales and fables. But Middle Eastern men do objectify women. Correct. That's why I said global culture. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Like, we didn't hear a part in there where the men, you know, right before the magic carpet comes in with the white guy on it, two Middle Eastern men come in and they were... With sabers. Know. Of course, they're mad. Of course, they want to kill somebody. Of course, they're unintelligible. Of course, they're Gibberish. dressed like it's... I don't even know what epoch Yeah, they're is. scary. They're, I don't know what that is. They're scary. She fights them off. I mean, you saw the rest of the episode. What, what do you... It doesn't matter. The rest of the episode really doesn't matter. Because in the end, they just use these cliches to further another plot. And let that be a metaphor for the whole... <laughs> all right, all right. So we want to play the next segment, which yes. is from the 1965 show of I Dream of Jeannie. And the main actress there is uh, Barbara Eden. And this is my point in saying that back in the day, they put a little bit more effort into their shows. We just heard the Charmed segment. And it's like all over the place. It's full of stereotypes. Let's his- listen to the segment and let's kind of dissect it and see the difference between trying to portray Middle Easterners back in the day, 1965, and more recently in 2004. Here we go. I must have gone further into orbit than I thought. Well, I've read about genies, but I never thought they really... It's like something out of the Arabian Nights. You know, I suppose if I hadn't come along, you'd still be in this. Wait a minute. I rescued you. So that was the first episode of that show. And I mean, I love the sigh. I love the... <laughs> you know, and I... So accommodating. I, so here's the thing, though. He said, this must be something that came up, came out of Arabian Nights. But... The actress was actually speaking Farsi and kudos for trying to actually, you know, mumble a bunch of stuff. She does actually, you know, it's either Farsi or Pashto and she actually manages to, to mumble some things uh, like you are my master. Your wish is my command. Great. Great, so, great effort. But <laughs> you're my master. Great. But then of all the things you could th- say, that is what a GD would, yeah. you know, you know, in our imagination yeah. would say. But at the same time. People back then were not happy because the Farsi had like too much of a heavy accent and they couldn't tell whether it was Pashto or Farsi and uh, her body language portrayed that of an Indian. So there was such high criticism. Little did these people know who criticized back in the day that things are only going to get worse and worse and worse. And these, you know, at least that effort still showed, you know, for me, if it was it was a stepping stone to something better, but it only got. But to me, the effort is almost ludicrous. I don't care that you're speaking Farsi. You're just using part of a fable to stage a sexist story about a servile woman who has a man for a master and she's there to serve his wishes. So in a sense, the genie is just being transposed. It doesn't even matter that it's a genie. It's a story about a woman who's going to spend her life trying to meet the expectations of a man to produce self-worth for herself. It's a fantasy. 
right? It's Woman more than a fantasy people. because in 1965 and even now, this resonates with a reality. It's more than a fantasy. Sexism is real. Well, so the character there is supposed to be from Baghdad. So technically, she's supposed to speak Arabic. Yeah. But to me, that almost doesn't matter. You're just using a trope of what you think is Middle Eastern culture to continuate your own culture of sexism. Sure. And that's why this makes sense to you. No, just but, because you want to stage something that's local that's and that's why, global. That's why those shows were a hit. You know, people, that's what people want to see, right? Like they're selling a show. A show is something that people want to watch. And then they, you know, the show would buy commercial spots and it's a way to generate money and pay the actors. And when they're like that, people want to watch them. If there are more realistic portrayals of Middle Eastern women, then I don't really think people want to see that or hear about that. So in a way, you're blaming the Middle East for something that you're choosing to embrace and that is reflective I'm not, of your own values. Like sexism transcends all cultures. Well, this, this episode, in, in this Orientalism Express, we're talking about the portrayal of a genie, of a woman being this like erotic, uh, yes yeah. master kind of thing. Which, by the way, I think Aladdin, if you look at Aladdin, that's a more, slightly more accurate, you know, <laughs> like okay. vision of a genie in the sense that okay, okay. the it's genie really the genie is yeah it's kind of blue it's this like spirit like thing it's, it's not necessarily a woman um, and then you have actually the Twilight Zone which is a great show like the original Twilight Zone had an episode where they had like I think it was called also I Dream of a Genie and, it, and the genie came out of a lamp like an oil lamp which is actually more accurate to the original stories and the genie comes out and then tricks him and the man in making a wish then becomes a genie himself he becomes trapped in the lamp and that's kind of like true because we always forget like I don't think that a lot of people here know that a genie is trapped in the lamp because he was dangerous and that somebody put him in there and that through giving somebody three wishes, the genies then set free and they're, you know, kind of this dangerous free roaming creature that can exactly, there's a lot of tricks and there's a catch. And I think that in most stories, genies are masculine. They're not actually women who create commands that way. I mean, in the I Dream of Genie episode, she comes out of the bottle, says something, and then immediately rushes to this white guy to kiss him on the lips right away. And then she just goes like, ah. And it's like, all right, like, what? And it's very <laughs> representative of many of the shows of the era. Well, in the United States, there's so many shows that are modeled after this idea of a woman at home trying to please a man. Well, I just, I want to be clear that I love genie stories and I want to see too. more of them on TV. What and was that show with the, like, what is it? The Bewitched? Bewitched. I feel like Bewitched is, is the same structure. Okay. So to me, in a way, it's almost... The last, the last Salman Rushdie book that I read, right, had... Salman Rushdie. It's not the last one that he wrote. I think it was uh, two years, eight months, and 28 nights. The whole book is based on a premise of spirits and genies and things like that. But in it, he throws a lot of stories that he read as a child. And it, it resides with me as like, this is kind of what I was told when I was a kid. I would love to see them explore the theme of a genie. And I like that there's that influence there that there's that Durka influence, like to contribute into popular culture that way. I just wish they would tweak it a little bit more so that women are not so eroticized. You know, like, you know, Durka women are not just sex objects or weak, you know, completely like overpowered But women creatures. are in general, so you can use an quote-unquote Arabian garment to convey a global story. It doesn't matter what she's wearing. It's, it's the scenario. It's the script. Yes. So the, the, the genie, the carpet is just an instrument 
it's not an appreciation of a culture, it's, it's a vector to the same logic. I mean, that's, that's how it is. <laughs> I mean, all right. Well, I so think in that sense, I'm more insulted by the warriors screaming, wanting to kill, than a little outfit that to me is, you can find in any culture. To me, this more threatening to continuously portray Durkas as people who just want to fight for no reason. You can't even understand what they're saying. They're just yelling. Yeah, they either want to fight or they want to F the other word. You know, it's like really either or. Either or. Really? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. This is, this is our subject now for this first mm -hmm. episode. We're yes. taking this format. I think next week, Thursday, 2 p.m., We're going to talk more about what it means to be a Durka in Washington, D.C. We're going to take it to the streets of D.C. We're going to be talking with people out there. And then we're going to have our Orientalism Express segment. So imagine something else. Um, we're going to bring a topic and it's going to be interesting. Um, just to remind you again, our episodes are going to be archived on fullserviceradio.org. And it's going to be also on www.districtdurka.com. Lilia, sum up. My Durka. <laughs> Durka power. I mean, thanks for listening to District Durkas. This is Full Service Radio. We are live from the Line Hotel. Come meet us next week, 2 o'clock, Thursday. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at fullserviceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.